Proverbs chapter 3. It's been a while since we have been in the great book of Proverbs. And we have been looking of late at the wisdom of God as He has given it to us in this grand book of Proverbs. We have looked in chapter 1 at the warning of wisdom, chapter 2 at the work of wisdom, and now as we come to chapter 3, we've begun to look at the wealth of wisdom or the abundance of wisdom. We have been seeing in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, a series of commands, six of them, that have been occupying our minds in these last days. Six commands with great fruit or motivations behind them. Command number one was in verses one and two, and that was to not forget the Lord's word. To not forget the Lord's word. In verses three and four, we saw another command, and that was to not forsake the Lord's character. Number three was in verses five and six, so very familiar, and that is to trust in the Lord and not in yourself. Trust in the Lord and not in yourself. And then we saw command number four as well in verses seven and eight, and that is to fear the Lord with humility and piety. And then we left off last time with a fifth command contained for us in verses nine and ten. And the principle that we derived from those verses is this give to the Lord from your financial and material resources. Proverbs three, nine and ten. Honor the Lord from your wealth, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. We've talked about the wealth of wisdom's command, and we see here in a couple of different messages that we presented to you that the Lord is challenging us to consider the matter of our giving. And in two previous messages, I've been talking to you about giving, not just from Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, but from throughout the Scripture that speak to us about this principle of giving. The Lord has been pleased to bless us. There have been many folks in the congregation who have come and have thanked me for the challenge of this matter of giving because while it is one of the greatest gifts that the church can receive, whether collectively or individually, it's also a rather convicting subject. So many of you have come and said thank you for this conviction of sin because it is one of the greatest sins in the whole of the church of Jesus Christ, this matter of not giving. I told you as we introduced this subject of giving that there are a number of things that we ought to do in order to express to God or to acknowledge that He is the giver of all things. Do you remember I said that one of the first things we need to do is to thank God from whom all wealth comes? And I shared with you a number of passages from the Scripture that show us repeatedly that God is the owner of all things and that we ought to thank Him because we recognize and we revel in the fact that God is the one who owns it all and He is pleased to give us some of it. I also said, secondly, that we ought to, based upon that thankfulness, use then the money that God gives us very wisely. We ought to thank Him for it, and therefore we ought to use that money wisely. 
And then I said, thirdly, since we believe that all money comes from God, we ought to give the first of our money back to God. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. First fruits, first priority. It may mean that that idea of the first fruits is the first place of our life, the first of what we have. Not only first biographically, but first in terms of God and His preeminency. We ought to give it back to Him. He's preeminently the first thing in our life. And so if He gives us something, we ought to give it back to Him first and foremost. We ought to be the honorer of God from our wealth. And I told you that clearly means that the Word of God is teaching us to give to Him from the money that He's given to us. And the first fruits idea is not just the money, because of course in that time, money also was money in produce, money in animals, money in land, material goods, material possessions. It's not always the idea of just giving of your cash in our society. It could also be giving of your produce, giving of your material wealth, giving of your jewelry, uh, giving of your life, giving of your time, giving of everything that you have were to be givers to God. That's what he says to us. And you remember I said that it wasn't a required giving that we were talking about here in the sense of paying your taxes. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, gives a very clear picture that the tithe was a required amount that was commanded to give as though we were giving of our taxes to the government, even though it was a theocracy in that time. It was a a God-run government. And even though the Levitical priesthood and others were running the government as it were, God still told them, I want you to give. And you remember I said to you that it was probably on an annual basis somewhere around 23 to 25% was supposed to be given back in a number of tithes, a number of tenths. And I said to you that even that word tenth may not just reveal a 10% kind of giving, but it's the idea of wholeness, of completeness. You ought to give God all that you have. You ought to give God all that He requires. And for them, He required somewhere around 23 to 25% of their income to support the government, to support the poor, to support those in need, to support widows, to support the Levitical priesthood, those who are bringing the people to God. That's the Old Testament form of required giving. The New Testament, of course, also requires a giving to the government. It's clearly stated in Romans chapter 13, and it says, pay your taxes. Clear and concise a command, pay your taxes. The Old Testament, the the Jews of old, they had a requirement to give to the government. We also have a requirement to give of the government. The government sends out ministers, as it were, to punish evildoers, the courts, the police, Those who serve as public servants, they are to be supported. We ought to do that because God says, by way of command, you must do it. But there's another concept about our giving, and I think that's where that first fruits comes from. It's the idea that I'm also to give over and above my required giving. I give of my heart. I give as a, as a free will offering to God. The Old Testament speaks of the Jews in that way, and we're going to look at that this morning. The New Testament speaks of that as well. And do you know where it speaks of that? It speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. And even though that has primary application to what Paul was doing in carrying gifts to poor Christians in Jerusalem and elsewhere, 
The secondary application for us is clear. We ought to set aside, as Paul says there, money to be given to the Lord out of our heart of love and gratitude to God for all that He has blessed us with. That's clearly the implication of chapter 16, verses 1 and following. And if that weren't enough, we looked, didn't we, last time at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that speaks to us of being a cheerful giver, a, a regular giver, a sacrificial giver. Even that word cheerful is the word hilarious. We're to be a hilarious giver. We're to give out of the overflow of that which God has blessed us. And in fact, Paul even says we ought to give in such a way that God is so pleased with our hearts because He sees our hearts and He knows what we're doing. It's what we should be all about. It's what should mark us as Christians. We should be marked as Christians even to be defined not simply as Christians but as givers. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a giver. Are you a giver? Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I give to the Lord. I give to the Lord to the degree that the Lord has blessed me. And someone might say, but what's the motivation? What's the reason for my giving? Well, look at verse 11 of Proverbs, or verse 10 of Proverbs chapter 3. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. Someone says, now wait a minute. Is this telling me that I should have as a motivation to give the receiving of something back? I'm to give from the first of my produce so that my barns will be filled with plenty and my vats will overflow with new wine. If we could put it in a New Testament context or a societal context today, so that I would be satisfied, so that I would have plenty, so that my desires would be satiated, so that my, my vats will overflow with uh, full desire, full blessing. You know what the answer to that is? Yes. Yes. God knows us. He knows our frame. He knows we're feeble and frail as dust. And He knows that there is a level of motivation within us that says that when we give, we give sometimes in order to receive. And you know what? That's true. It's true both in terms of the sinful part of us, but it's also true in the sense that it isn't sin. That we give so that we can receive and how is it that we receive? Well, we receive because we give out again. You see, that's the proper motivation. I give to God of my money. I give to God of my produce. I give to God of my material possessions. I give to God in order that I may receive again, but not for the purpose of hoarding, not for the purpose of keeping, so that I may give again. That's the proper motivation. My barns will be filled with plenty and my vats will overflow with new wine so that I can then give greater gifts after that. So that I can give greater gifts to God. I can be a, a greater giver. I can be a more hilarious giver. I can be one who gives more and more and more and more because I'm receiving more and more and more and more. There is a motivation in the giving of gifts in order to receive. But the catch is, not so that I can receive, so that I can keep, so that I can hoard, but so that I can give again. That I can give again. You see, a person who's a giving person loves to see the look on people's face when he gives. 
He loves to see what it does to other people. And he asks God to give him more so that his barns would be filled with plenty, so that his vats would overflow with new wine, not for the sake of his own gain, not for the sake of what he can receive again, but for what he can have to give out. More and more and more. And in the meantime, guess what? All of your needs are met. All of your needs are met. I didn't say desires. But you know what? God even goes beyond that so much of the time, doesn't he? Gives us far more than we need and gives us even some of our own desires. But it will be as a direct result of what I want to do with the money that I'm given. I want to give it out. And even though my needs are met and even some of my desires are met, it all comes from a gracious God. He gives so wonderfully. He gives so bountifully so that I might give. And not just give to those who I know have some but maybe need more, I even give to those who don't have anything. Especially those who don't have anything. This this is a principle of God's Word. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 15. I want to show you this. I want to show you some of these passages in the Old Testament that speak of this kind of giving, especially to those who are in desperate need. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, and this is after a lot of giving has been done by the Jews. Maybe even the idea of all of their required giving having been given, and maybe even all of their other giving that they've given out of their heart has been given. And then Deuteronomy chapter 15 is talking about giving to the poor itself. Look at verse 4 of chapter 15. This is is what God told them in their community, the community of the Jewish people. However, Deuteronomy 15, 4, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. In other words, you take care of the poor and God obligates himself to bless you in the land. Verse 5, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all which I'm commanding you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you and you will lend to many nations but you will not borrow and you will rule over many but they will not rule over you. Verse 7, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, one of the men in your community, one among your own flesh, If any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. This this is after all the giving has been done. This is after all that I've required of you. I want you to look for needs. Verse 9, beware that there is no base thought in your heart, wicked thought, saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near. In other words, that's the time when the poor were given money from the government, from the produce of the land, the corners, the fields. He says, don't say, well, that's when you'll receive yours. You know, the implication is they might not make it until then. They might die before then. Don't don't say in your heart your, your base thought, Uh, the evil of your heart. Don't say, well, the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin 
in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. God loves a cheerful giver and not a grievous giver not a begrudging giver. Your heart shall not be grievous toward him. It's not that when you hand him the money, you go, oh, oh, in your heart you're saying, oh, I just, I don't want to part with this, and I certainly don't want to give it to this guy. And then notice this, because for this thing, the thing of your giving with a a gracious, generous heart, for this thing... Because of what you've just done, the Lord, your God, will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Want to have blessing from the Lord? Want all of your undertakings to go well? For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely, notice all these words here, generously, graciously, freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in the land. And notice it says to your needy, to your poor. It's not the government's problem. It's not society's problem. It's your problem. It's your needy, your poor. Someone might come along and say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. Maybe that had something to do with that theocracy. Uh, Maybe that doesn't apply in the New Testament age. It does apply. Look at James chapter 1, verse 27. This is what God tells us, beloved. This is what God says to us. So much so that in chapter 1, verse 27, the Lord says to us that this is the essence of pure and undefiled religion. If you say you're religious, you say you're a Christian, you say you're a believer in Christ, you say you love the Lord... This is what it says about you. This is what it says you'll be made up of. This is what it says will be the essence of this religion of yours. Verse 27, James 1. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. Whether anybody else sees it, whether anybody else knows it, this is what is in the sight of our God and Father. This is what He sees as pure and undefiled religion. What is it? It is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Read in there a needy person. A needy person. And look what he brings in in chapter 2, verse 2. I don't want you to be personally favoring someone as opposed to someone else, he says. And in verse 2, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring... Read in there, someone who's rich, someone who's wealthy, someone who has means. And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? In other words, we were all spiritually destitute. We had no money spiritually. Didn't God make us rich in the faith that He's given to us? And we're heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. I can just see somebody say, yeah, but the poor, they're in that position because of their own choices. Some of them yes, some of them no. You've dishonored the poor man. In other words, he has honor. There is honor about him. Why? Because he's made in the image of God. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Some of those do that because they have the means. 
They have the wherewithal. They have the money. They have the backing. They have the influence. And they take you to court. And they extort more money out of you. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. In other words, I love myself so much, I ought to spread that love around to other people. The love that I have for myself is so great, so wondrous, so magnanimous. I love myself so much that I ought to compare the love I have with others with the love I have for myself. And since I love myself so much, I ought to show love, that kind of love, to other people. But if you show partiality, verse 9, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law. And then look at 1 John chapter 3. This is not just an old covenant idea, beloved. This is, a, this is a New Testament truth. This is giving to the poor, giving to the needy. This is pure and undefiled religion. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. This gets, this gets down to the motivation of the heart. This is a measure of the soul. This is where we really live. Everyone, verse 15, who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need... In other words, if you have means, if you have the opportunity, you have some of the world's goods, you have material possessions, you have money, and you see your brother in need, and you close your heart against him... Here's the rhetorical question. How does the love of God abide in that person? How does the love of God abide in a person who sees his brother in need and doesn't give of the world's goods to help him? Verse 18, little children, let us love with, not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Not just what we say, not just what we intend to do, not just what I had purposed to do but never carried out. I want to carry it out in deed and truth, not just with my word, not just with my tongue, not just saying, I want to help you or I think I'm going to help so-and-so, but to do it in deed and truth. And you know, the Jews had a problem with this. At, at, at various points in the history of Israel, you can see them doing quite well, and we're going to look at some of those, and you can see that they're not doing so well at times. And they struggled with this just like we struggle with it. They struggled with the idea of selfishness and self-centeredness and self-absorption where they were all about filling up their own needs and their own desires and God had to continually indict them and bring them back to a place of being a cheerful giver. And we're not talking about required giving. We're talking about free will offerings, free will giving, giving cheerfully, generously. And they sometimes didn't do that. In fact, I want you to turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, at least as it is presented to us in our Bibles. Malachi. This is, this is an indictment. This is something that the Jews were regularly, by God, commanded not to do. And they were doing this continually. And he had to say to them repeatedly, don't do this. Be a giver. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, and this is talking, I believe, about both required giving and free will offerings because he says tithes and offerings and not just the offering of bulls and rams and goats but also the off offering of help to the needy and things like that. Through the prophet Malachi, God says in verse 8 of chapter 3, will a man rob God? In other words, since God owns it all and if you are stingy in your giving, you're robbing God. Yet you are robbing me. 
But someone immediately says, but, but, but how have we robbed you? The answer, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Do you see? Do you see how it's linked up again with barns that are filled with plenty and vats that are overflowing with new wine? Do you see the connection with obedience to God out of a heart of gratitude and what God does then by giving us the goods so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. Let me show you. Let me show you what I will do if you will do what you're commanded to do. This is what the, the Lord of hosts says. Test me in this if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. That may be very well that concept of pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. I want to be a giver. I want to be a giver. I want to sacrifice. I want to give to God. And one of the great blessings of giving to God is that it overflows to me so that I can take cup around the blessing, fill it up again, and then throw it on to somebody else. Verse 11, Then I will rebuke the devourer for you. I'll even work on your enemies, those who are trying to devour you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delighted land. Well, there's a word for us there. Be a giving community. God will bless us. He'll give to us. Not so we can hoard it. Not so we can keep it and say, well, I did my deed. I did my giving. I did what I was supposed to do, and now the blessing's coming. And I'm naming it and claiming it. See, that's wrong theology. It's not that you name it and claim it so you can grab your Cadillac. It's not so you can name it and claim it and grab your money and grab your suits and grab your gold. If it comes to you, great. But if it comes to you, just act like a conduit and let it go right back out. And in the meantime, all your needs will be met. God tells us. He says, test me in this. I'll show you. I'll show you personally. I'll show it in your land. I'll, I'll show it to your people. And while that may not be us in the theocratic sense, it's us in terms of the personal sense as believers. And boy, the Jews, they would at times be convicted about that. They would at times be saying, yes, you're right, Lord. You're right. We want to be giving people. In fact, turn to Second Chronicles, and I'll show you this. This is, this is marvelous. Second Chronicles chapter 31. Th that, that's a negative in Malachi. This is a positive in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 31. We don't want God to say, you're robbing me. We want God to say, you're doing well. You're, you're being good givers. You're sacrificial. And notice in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, beginning in verse 5, King Hezekiah appointed that there would be some reforms in the land. And verse 5 says, As soon as the order spread, the order of reforms, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought it in abundantly, the tithe of all. The sons of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and placed them in heaps. In the third month they began to make the heaps and finished them by the seventh month. 
when Hezekiah and the rulers came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, said to him, and notice this, since the contributions began to be brought into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat with plenty left over, for the Lord has blessed his people, and this great quantity is left over. You know what? Whether it's required giving, tithes, whether it's free will offering, and your abundant generosity in giving, you want it to be where someone says, or a whole community, or a whole church, we've had enough. It's plenty. And I have to show you this one. First Chronicles. First Chronicles. Go to the end of First Chronicles, chapter 29. This is, this is tremendous biblical insight into the matter of giving. This is the offerings for the temple. And this is King David, verse 1. Then David said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony, and stones of various colors, and all kinds of precious stones, and alabaster in abundance." Moreover, in my delight, this is David speaking, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God. What a giver he is. Over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. It's a great giver here. Moreover, in my delight, he says, Namely, this is what he says, three talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the buildings, of the gold for the things of gold, and of silver for the things of silver, that is for all the work done by the craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And someone's going to say, yeah, well, obviously he had all that stuff to give. It's not the percentage, it's the heart. Verse 6, then the rulers of the fathers' households and the princes of the tribes of Israel and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with the overseers over the king's work offered, what? Willingly. And for the service of the house of God, they gave 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver and 18,000 talents of brass and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever possessed precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in care of Jeel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart." And King David also rejoiced greatly. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. In other words, he was overcome when he saw the giving of the people. And because he loved God and because he knew God was the owner of it all, he just, he just breaks forth in a paean of praise. 
Oh, Lord, you're great and powerful and glorious and victorious and majestic. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. He goes on to talk about it. Verse 20, now bless the Lord. Bless the Lord your God. He's telling the assembly and all the assembly, bless the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed low and did homage to the Lord and to the king. That's the only right response. And on the next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank that day before the Lord with great gladness. So you can be a glad, happy, fulfilled, blessed person if you are a giving person. Now here's, a, here's another neg- negative. Look at Haggai. Haggai. That's to the right of Zephaniah and to the right of Zechariah. I know, happy is the person who knows where Haggai is. Peek to your neighbor there and see where he's turning and then turn there. Haggai. This is a negative this is, this is a not-so-good example. Here's God coming back to the Jews and saying, you guys aren't givers. You're hoarding. Haggai 1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now this is what the Lord is saying. This people, the Jews... Israel, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So he says, I know that's what you're saying in your heart. This is what the people say. It's not time to rebuild the house of God. It's not time yet. And he's, and he's going to tell them why they're saying that. He's going to tell them what's in their heart. Then the word of the Lord came, verse 3, by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? while this house lies desolate? In other words, the temple's been destroyed. God wants it rebuilt. And it stands in ruins while the people of the law, the people of God, are building their own paneled houses. That's what they're doing. They're saying, look, somebody else can take care of it. Somebody else can build that. I've got to work on my own house. I've got to panel my own house. Verse 5, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, think about what you're doing. You have sown much, but harvest little. Oh, we come into the land again. God is withholding blessing. He's withholding blessing. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. My, oh my. The temple's destroyed. Uh, The temple of the Lord is is desolate. And you're trying to put money in your own purse and you don't realize that the purse has holes in it. Your money's just going out the bottom. You don't realize it. Think about it, he says. Consider your ways. 
Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes too little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Isn't that fascinating? I blow it away. You try to build your houses and I'm blowing it away. You try to put that panel up on the side and I'm going to blow it away because you haven't done what's right. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. That's somebody who's hoarding his money. Somebody who's saying somebody else can take care of it. Maybe we come up with all kinds of flimsy excuses about why we can't give. I have too many bills. Too many obligations. Verse 10, Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. It's almost as though God is saying, I'm putting the stopper in. No blessing. No produce, no new wine, no blessing on men. Ground's not going to produce it, and all the labor of your hands is going to be frustrated. Now, if I were a businessman, I might say to myself, business proposition, business technique, business strategy number one, honor God. Honor God. I can't help but think that Enron didn't honor God. Greed. Greed. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. They turned. They did consider their ways. They repented. As the Lord their God had sent him, this prophet who prophesied, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. You see, you honor God. Then verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you. Boy, what comfort. What great comfort. I'm with you. I'm in this with you. If you do what is right, I'll bless you. So the Lord, notice this, verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Wow. They did what is right. They honored God. God honored them. This is what God will do. God blesses those who give, those who honor Him. I can't help but close with this. Exodus. Exodus chapter 35. This is as we close. This is maybe the most grand example of what I'm speaking of. This is so positive, so affirming. Going back to the idea of working on the tabernacle, verse 10, Moses assembles all the congregation and he says, go back to verse 4, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded saying, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. This This is not required giving, this is above and beyond a willing heart. Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution. I love that phrase. 
he, since he owes, owns it all, and since he wants you to give it, when you give it, you say, this is the Lord's contribution. This is, this is not just Lance's contribution. Uh, this is not Fred's contribution. This is the Lord's contribution. This is gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins and acacia wood and oil for lighting and spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful man, which by the way means it's not just me giving my money, it's me giving of my talent too, right? Let every skillful man among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks, and its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. And then look at verse 20. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence. Everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garment. Then those, all those whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. Every man who had in his possession blue and purple and scarlet material and fine linen and goat's hairs and ram skins dyed red and porpoise skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver and bronze brought the Lord's contribution. And every man who had in his possession acacia wood for any work of service brought it. All the skilled women spun with their hands. See, you're using your talents, your, your time, and brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet material and in fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred with a skill spun the goat's hair. The rulers brought the onyx stones and the stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and the spice and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. The Israelites, all the men and women whose hearts moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. Free will offering. This is just my heart, Lord. This is just my, my heart to you and to the people. This is your tabernacle. This is your place. We want it to look... Well, we want it to be a ministry of excellence. And notice verse 31. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. That's one of the men. In understanding and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship to make designs for working in gold and silver and bronze. In other words, God fashioned a man who could be in charge of it and who could design it and make it what it needed to be made in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood so as to perform in every inventive work. Chapter 36, verse 2, Then Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every skilled person in whom the Lord had put skill, which means that the Lord puts not only money in our possession but skill there as well. The Lord put the skill there. Everyone whose heart stirred him to come to the work to perform it. They received from Moses all the contributions which the sons of Israel had brought to, for, to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary, and they still continued bringing to him offerings every morning. Someone said, look, I know I haven't given enough. I know I should give more. I'm going to bring something every morning. There's something that I can bring because God has blessed me so much. Verse 4, And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing, and they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command. And a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. 
Oh, bless the church where the leadership says, please stop bringing your money. Right? Folks, it's enough. We, 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 don't, we don't know what we're going to do with this cash. We, we don't know what we're going to do with the jewelry. We don't what, know what we're going to do with the land. For the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for all the work to perform it. Wow. Incredible. Do you have that willing, giving, generous heart? I can't help but quote 1 Samuel 2.30. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Honor God, honor God from your wealth, from the first of your produce, first place, first priority. And God will bless you and us abundantly. This is clear from the word of the living God. Oh, Father, oh, God, how could we keep your own gifts from you? We give, we want to give, we're convicted of giving, we've been hoarding, we've been keeping, we've been lying. We've not been trusting. Oh, Lord, forgive us. We haven't been givers. We haven't given to you. We haven't been blessed. Some of us maybe even are sick, ill, and partly because we've been begrudging in our giving, grievous to give it away. Father, I pray that you would challenge us anew and afresh. That we should honor you from our wealth and from the first of that which we produce. So that you would bless us abundantly, not for the sake of us, but for the sake of our giving still yet to others. May we be those kinds of givers, Lord. Thank you for these abundant examples from both the Old and the New Testaments that challenge us even beyond our own paying of the requirements that we owe. It's, it's our free heart of giving that you're after. May we give because Jesus Christ gave it all. Jesus Christ gave it all to us. He gave his life. He gave himself in death. Lord, please, please challenge us to give like Jesus Christ who gave it all. In his name we pray. Amen.